Welcome to Trafe, a debatably Jewish podcast. So Sam, this is our first episode as an adult podcast because we passed our mitzvah episode. What do you think we should be doing differently? Well, along fairly gendered lines, maybe it's time for us to get some hair gel and flip our the front part of our hair up. <laughs> uh, this is so niche. Uh, yeah, I'll just get my knitted kippa. My uh, dippity do. What's what's that? That was the one of the gels of choice. Oh, I don't. I don't actually. I, I couldn't use hair gel. Like on religious grounds? No, I just have curly hair. Oh yeah, same. But I still, you still struggled with the very um, intense. Like the level seven or whatever that was like a thicker brand of hair gel. So wait, you would put hair gel? What would you do with the hair gel? Well, I failed, but I tried for many years to like flip the top part up. But my hair just didn't do it. I mean, I definitely tried to do that too. It never worked. I just ended up having like weird amounts of gel in the front of my hair. And then the front (laughs) got like harder, but it didn't really accomplish the flip that all the cool kids had. Where did the idea of just flipping the top part come from? It was the style at the time. Yeah. Okay, this is getting a little too much into the weirdness of our high school years. I think that the best way to deflect is to talk about some relevant information. We do record at CKUT, which is in Montreal, and it is somewhat affiliated with McGill University, and something fairly relevant happened at McGill this week, eh, David? Yeah, that guy dropped his whole pizza. Yeah, you want to have a conversation about kosher pizza again? Uh, Which I might point out was one of the most responded to points of anything i've ever raised on the show who responded to that several people allegedly no no definitely but stay tuned we might actually be going into the field to investigate this kosher pizza scenario a little more in depth returning back to the point david what happened at miguel this week the undergraduate student society or student union passed resolution supporting the movement for boycotts divestments and sanctions against the state of israel yeah they did we're gonna actually talk about it more in the first news segment of the day So, Sam, who do we have on the show today? So there's actually a fair amount of us on this show, which has kind of become less and less of the norm in the previous episodes. I feel like we are shooting ourselves in the foot a little bit by telling people that off the top of the show, uh, which is the (laughs) point where they could turn it off completely. Yeah, but I promise you, you will be happy if you listen all the way through to the interview because we are fortunate enough to have done an interview with Dean Spade. Yeah, we had him on the show to talk a bit about the backlash that he was receiving after speaking out against pinkwashing, specifically after the Creating Change conference that happened in Chicago. Now, there's no other way to say this, but we are both huge fans, and we were very excited about doing the interview. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, we also have a new installment of our recurring segment, BDS Watch Watch. This is your episode of Trafe for the 22nd of Adar 15776. What do you mean, one? There are two Adars, I believe, David. You mean two Adars? Sorry, Adar 2 is a leap month, and every seven, eight, or nine years, we just throw in another uh, month. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so, so it's the first. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. First. So the next episode will be in Adar 2. So since we last had this segment on the show, a lot has actually happened, not just here, but globally. There's been this big legislative push against the BDS movement, materializing in a lot of different forms. Yeah, since January, it feels like international governments have really taken this into hyperdrive. You have, like, in the U.S., in the U.K., in France, uh, even Canada, there have just been these attempts by legislatures to ultimately condemn without a whole lot of teeth 
BDS as a general movement and people associated to BDS. Yeah, but in some of the situations, we actually are seeing some of the legislative teeth showing themselves, thankfully not here as of yet, but we're going to talk a bit about some different examples of how this has materialized. Yeah, so the U.S. at the federal level had their own version of this. Uh, in mid-February, President Obama signed a bill opposing BDS. Yeah, I mean, I, I read it and, it, and it actually seemed very similar to a statement that the conservative government in Canada signed about 10 years ago that was pretty much just saying that they were committed to being in solidarity with Israel in all these different ways. It's not actually legislation in the sense that they were creating new programs or putting no. anything into law. It was yeah. just putting forward this statement of intent on their behalf that they are going to be championing this. And it bears noting that there are similar bills that are moving through 20 different state legislatures. And it's fairly important to notice that often these kind of local, either provincial or statewide legislation actually end up having more of an effect on organizers. Yeah, for example, in January, the New York State Senate passed a bill that actually prohibited the state from contracting with or investing in companies or any organizations that abide by boycotts against Israel. Yeah, which is actually amazing, David, because it's ultimately reverse BDS. Yeah, I mean, the last budget of the Israeli government dedicated $26 million to Israel advocacy globally, which this is squarely a part of. It, it definitely seems clear that a lot of state leaders are getting a very similar message. And we're seeing a lot of these funds go directly into work combating BDS. Unfortunately, we have not been spared in the Canadian context. Yeah, on uh, February 22nd, there is a big vote that happened in the Canadian parliament condemning the BDS movement. Yeah, the old conservatives, Tony Clement and Michelle Rempel, uh, put forward a motion that passed by a margin of 229 to 51. Yeah, and for listeners outside the Canadian context that are maybe unfamiliar with the legislative process here, a motion is different from a bill. It actually wasn't a law that was put into place, but again, similar to the U.S. context, it was a statement of intent expressing their priority to combat the BDS movement. Yeah, I think ultimately it serves to reaffirm the course that the Trudeau government is going to uphold similar to their predecessor. And that has certainly been applauded and identified in the Jewish press in Canada. In contrast with this, though, on that same day, on February 22nd, the Undergraduate Student Society of McGill University held a similar vote about what to do about BDS, considering a motion that was put forward in support of BDS, and it won. Uh, the Undergraduate Student Union voted in favor of this resolution, uh, 512 to 357, which is a pretty large margin. By my quick mathematical estimates, that's about 115. The gap is about 115 people. Oh, sorry. It's like 115 percent. What are you? What? Nope. 115. Uh, can your mathematical calculations tell us the percentage? No, it definitely can't. Okay. I mean, it could, but we would take more time and we'll leave this to the experts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, ultimately, uh, the, B the McGill BDS motion targeted three corporations, L3 Communications, Mizrahi Tefahot Bank, and Remax. And it is a call for the student union to divest from those corporations. Yeah. And, and also to make it an advocacy priority in their work and bring it up with uh, McGill's Board of Governors to change policy at the university itself. Now, the institutional community in Montreal has gone on to Code Red. I have several friends who have gotten emails from the Federation with addresses that they are not sure how the Federation got, I might add, asking them to vote. Yeah, the the no campaign against this has been very well supported institutionally. There's been a lot of public energy and support from the institutional Jewish community nationally converging onto this battle. And generally, the response from the institutional community has been to focus on questions of intimidation 
anti-Semitism and some kind of weird understanding of safe space. Yeah, I have to say, as people who have been following the potential new directions for Israel advocacy, for combating BDS on campuses, it's all the same tired tactics we've seen a thousand times before, saying that opposition to Israel is anti-Semitism, saying that there's no safe space on campus for Jews. It's the same act over and over again. And I kind of thought we were going to see something different here. There was an element where they keep talking about how this might lead to anti-Semitism on campus. Yeah, the Montreal Gazette actually reported that there are what they described as disgruntled alumni who are threatening to pull financial support from the university in kind of a reverse BDS attempt. We definitely saw this in a very stark way at York in recent weeks. And as our Ontario correspondent, David, I feel like you bear the burden of describing what has transpired. Uh, An organization called the Friends of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, we've talked about them before on the show, they're a far-right Zionist organization, put out a call to members of the Canadian Jewish community to reconsider sending their children to York University. Uh, This call was picked up by tons of Jewish media. It was circulated very widely. David, for listeners who are not on top of their Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies press releases, what was the content? Okay, so the York University Faculty Association voted in favor of supporting a student campaign called Why You Divest. That is just what it sounds like. It's about petitioning and pressuring the university and various organizations within the university to divest from weapons manufacturers who are profiting from arms sales to various regions, various countries, including Israel. Seems fairly reasonable. But Friends of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, as well as the Jewish Defense League, have taken issue with this campaign and accusing it of being a veil for anti-Semitism on campus. Now, York University raises a bell. It has been in the news recently for another reason related to Palestine and uh, claims of anti-Semitism. Is there any way that these two are connected, David? Um, Well, (laughs) that is a very good question. I mean, we talked about this other instance on the show uh, a couple episodes ago where Paul Bronfman, the director of the Friends of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, but in most media reports was referred to as the head of a film studio who was supporting York's film program, decided to divest his funds from York University after a mural went up that featured a Palestinian watching a village being bulldozed with a rock uh, in his hand. So Paul Bronfman reversed BDSs. That's correct. And then he gets his other organization to issue a press release condemning the behavior and and context at York University. That is 100% correct. And now the Jewish Daily Forward and a bunch of other Jewish media outlets decided to take this press release and write a kind of scare piece about the concerns of a Jewish group with regards to sending their Jewish students to York University. Yeah, and if it's possible there's anyone listening who is not familiar with the anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism conflation that is often made here by folks on the right, including the Friends of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, this is what is described as the new anti-Semitism, which is really just any political work that's critiquing the state of Israel in any form. But, but, but returning back to the point, reverse BDS is definitely a tactic that's being employed. It actually seems like the new trend that's playing out both legislatively and also on college and university campuses right now. Will there be bagels after the revolution? Montreal uh, bagels are better than New York ones. Uh, it's time for Shkoyak. Back by popular demand and the fact that we have structured our show in a particular way, we're in the Shkoyak segment, David. We are indeed. For the first-time listeners, firstly, welcome. But secondly... The Shkoyach is a time in the show where we kind of give people a congratulations or a pat on the shoulder, a high five maybe. And if it's not a people, maybe it's a thing, 
or an event or a group of people. It's, it's pretty loose over here. And today we're actually going to start with David. I never thought I'd get my moment like this. Yeah, the perks of uh, being a co-host. Okay, I think I'm ready. So my shkoyach today, it's actually in reference to a shkoyach that I gave uh, several months ago. I'm not sure if you remember the shkoyach, Sam. Callback. But it was a shkoyach that I gave to someone named Nicola Font, who was a reporter at the News Gazette in Illinois. Uh, who actually retweeted us at one point several months ago. Yeah, so uh, for those who, who haven't heard this episode, it seemed as though the News Gazette had identified a need for a beat covering menorah vandalism in Illinois because it was such a frequent thing. In fact, it was for a specific menorah at this one Chabad center outside the school. Last April it happened. It happened again in August. David, I remember. Yeah, so they found this guy, this guy Christy, that they got on camera, and the police said he was trying to break it because he wanted to give it to, he his, to a friend. Yeah, his Jewish friend. He wanted to bring it to his Jewish friend. So do you remember all this, Sam? I, David, I do. Okay. So last night, as I was perusing the pages of the Illinois News Gazette. Not intentionally, I have to presume. Of course I went on it intentionally. You just randomly went on the newsgazette.com? I was looking for a square. All right. And I saw the headline, UI softball player is alleged menorah vandal. Okay. There's a lot there. I feel like we were going to have to unpack this in the next few minutes, but... Firstly, I have to assume that UI is University of Illinois. Is that a fair assumption? That is correct. Okay. Uh, softball is neither here nor there. He could be a bowler or she could be a bowler. Now, alleged menorah vandal, I have to assume that we're talking about the same one. But on the last episode that we talked about this, he was identified and he had a quote-unquote Jewish friend. So this would seem to imply that there is another uh, menorah vandal roaming the streets of Illinois. Uh, you are unfortunately correct. Just the beginning of February, on February 7th, security video from the Chabad Center. Uh, the same Chabad? The same Chabad Center. Wow. Showed uh, two people twisting some light bulbs off of the menorah and breaking some of the menorah's arms. Huh. And this comes just, at, like in December, there was a huge ceremony where campus officials rededicated the old repaired menorah. And yet again, it was vandalized. But this time they had high quality security camera footage of the people who did it. Wow, that is so bizarre. I assume these people were not unscrewing the light bulbs for their Jewish friends? Uh, no, uh, a release from the police department said that they're trying to unscrew the light bulbs just to put them out and did not mean to break the menorah. In fact, they told this to the rabbi of the Chabad, who had a pretty good quote. He said, we're talking about a nine foot thing. I have light bulbs on my porch and no one shoots them out. It's a pretty good point. Yeah. Yeah. But different from the last two times that this happened, this time the local Jewish Federation and the local Hillel kind of got involved on the scene. Huh. And they put out a statement kind of suggesting that this might have something to do with rising anti-Semitism. And my shkoyach for this week is actually going to Rabbi David Techtel, whose response to all this has actually been like incredibly reasonable and has been focused on trying to build better relationship with the community. After he said that he actually doesn't think that this is indicative of a rise in anti-Semitism, he asked the question of why is it that students here have less sensitivity to other people's property and symbols of religion? I think that's something that we need to address. Hmm. Did Nicole LaFond have anything to do with this article? Well, that's the thing. Nicole LaFond... Has Lafont, she moved on from the News Gazette? All of the about four or five articles regarding this most recent vandalism that ha happened earlier in the month uh, were all by different reporters, none of which were her. So hmm. I, I, I wasn't able to find out whether she has left the, the News Gazette, not to disparage any of these reports. Just didn't quite have the same sparkle. Yeah, well, we will be tweeting this episode out to Nicola Fon, so hopefully she listens and uh, provides us with this information. Listeners, we will keep you up to date as to uh, what Nicola Fond is up to. 
Um, so Sam, what's your square for this week? So my square this week is going to be a continuation of the last episode's square, and it seems like I'm going for a little bit of a suite, if you will. Uh, like S-U-I-T-E or S-W-E-E-T? Oh, no, like S-U-I-T-E. But I guess suite, I guess I'm going with suite in both senses of the word. Okay. So it's a joint square to sweet potatoes and apple crisp. <laughs> what? Uh, do you want to tell me a bit more about this? Yeah, I mean, pick which one and we'll go. Okay. Yeah. Sam, why are you giving a square to apple crisp? Okay. So apple crisp is um, basically like a baked apple pie. First of all, apple pies are always baked. Okay, apple crisps are cut up apples. That's one part of it, yeah. With um, a lot of sugar, some oats, some cinnamon, and it's baked in the oven. Yeah, I think I think people know what it is. Yeah. So what, why why are you giving your scratch to the apple crisp? So my grandma, my dad's mom, used to make it, and it was just something that I feel like resonated as far as things that I really enjoyed in the world. It seemed like the rest of her food was decent, but not fantastic. Oh, harsh. All due respect to her, she was a great person. Um, it just felt like the apple crisp was exceptional. And every time you went over for dinner, it just felt like that was a just a super ending to the meal. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Well, so how come you want to give it uh, your square this week? Last week, I gave an anti square to kosher pizza, and I just felt like I wanted to be more affirming towards the foods that I liked. Sweet potatoes, it's less on sentimental grounds and more on utilitarian grounds. So I have to make a lunch every day for school. Uh, I don't really make sandwiches. I'm more of the kind of like vegetables and rice kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe some tofu, maybe tuna occasionally, but it's getting lesser and lesser these days. And someone informed me of the marvelous properties of sweet potatoes several weeks ago. And I put that knowledge into practice, David. I mean, that's great. I, I'm, I'm happy to welcome you into the world of people who enjoy sweet potatoes on the regular. I'm so happy to be part of that world. So for the interview today, we have Dean Spade on the show. Yeah, we reached out to him after the whole kerfuffle at the Creating Change conference. And we ended up having a much longer conversation about a bunch of different issues related to the conference, related to some of the backlash that he faced around the conference, and bigger questions about Jewish identity in general. Yeah, so Dean is an activist, a writer, and an educator. He founded the Sylvia Rivera Law Project and also is a professor at the Seattle University School of Law. He also published a book, Normal Life, Administrative Violence, Critical Trans Politics, and the Limits of the Law in 2011. Uh, and he is also the co-editor of the online journal Enough, which focuses on the personal politics of wealth redistribution. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on the show, Dean. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we were hoping to start with the Creating Change Conference. People who've listened to the radio show know about it in broad strokes. We interviewed someone from Jewish Voice for Peace, but we were corresponding earlier today, and you mentioned that there has been some particular backlash, and I was wondering if you could talk about some of the responses that you faced in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, no problem. I think it's kind of pretty typical stuff from what I've seen in these controversies in the last few years. One thing is that I received a lot of, you know, hate mail, like personal emails that are simultaneously 
homophobic or transphobic and just like really, you know, strong reactionary language. Um, I received that like through my email address at my job, through various Facebook pages and kind of any way I can be reached. And then also today I realized that someone has bought two domain names, deanspade.com and deanspade.org and made them link to a page they created that has basically a pinkwashing argument that's like about how wonderful Israel is to LGBT people. Oh, wow. So kind of, you know, the reverse of what I would want to endorse. It's like a brand new blog that just got started in January when I guess they bought these domain names. So that's sad to learn about. Yeah, and I also noticed that because part of what we do on the show involves a lot of reading through the Jewish media and the Jewish press, uh, both of us noticed that they actually had a particular interest in talking about your role in condemning pinkwashing at the conference and more generally. And something that I also noticed is that in all of the articles, there was never any mention of the fact that you're actually Jewish. I think there was a, a forward article that had a correction because it originally said you weren't Jewish. Yeah, I contacted the forward when someone told me the article said I wasn't Jewish. And it's just interesting because it, the things I write frequently say that I'm Jewish when I'm writing on this topic. And certainly the movie we made, Pinkwashing Exposed, in it, I talk about being Jewish um, and how that relates to this work for me. So I can't help but think either that the people who are writing about this just obviously don't do their research or don't read anything I wrote before they accuse me of things, or that it's more convenient to portray me as not being Jewish because one of the ways, particularly in the most recent Creating Change controversy that I've seen the whole controversy portrayed is as if all the people who are criticizing pinkwashing are not Jewish anti-Semites, and all the people who are Jewish would be on the side of Israel. Like That's a kind of classic you know, misinformation that's going on in this particular framing. So over the last few years, how have you seen the strategies coming from the Zionist movement around pinkwashing shifting? Um, I think, you know, one thing that is helpful for me is to start by thinking about how the point of something like pinkwashing and more broadly the point of brand Israel is to help shift Israel's image by making people associate Israel with things that people already think of as progressive or liberal, whether that's green technology or whether it's LGBT rights. And so... The framework around it is to always see if it can attach and kind of co-opt and recuperate Israel's image through those items. And so one thing I'm noticing is that that's getting more nuanced in terms of trying to co-opt the things that have come up in the critiques of pinkwashing itself. For example, when we had the controversy in 2012 about the pinkwashing tour that came to Seattle that we made the movie about, at that time, a wider bridge was collaborating with Stand With Us. And, you know, Stand With Us has got this huge reputation as being a very right-wing Israel advocacy organization. And I think today you wouldn't see a wider bridge collaborate with Stand With Us because the thing they're trying to promote about their image and the image of the pinkwashing work they're doing, you know, they say it's not pinkwashing and they are trying to distance themselves from looking like they are solely an Israel advocacy organization and instead say, oh, no, we're an LGBT organization that also wants to build a relationship between LGBT people in North America and Israel, right? So they're kind of trying to sideline that they're this overt propaganda project for Israel, right? And so I think that what we'll continue to see is that as we raise these critiques of pinkwashing and as different you know, events get canceled or become controversial that are put on by groups like A Wider Bridge, we'll see them try to put on events that anticipate that. So, for example, they're increasingly trying to act like their vision is inclusive of some kind of ability to critique Israel itself. So maybe they would have somebody on a panel in their dream world eventually who is a little bit critical of Israel, not, you know, not to the point of actually wanting to have an overt conversation about the occupation of apartheid, not to the point of bringing up boycott as a strategy, but just enough 
to say, oh, no, no, it's not propaganda. You know, even their decision at creating change to collaborate with Jerusalem Open House, since Jerusalem Open House has some level of its own messaging that it serves Palestinians, you know, that's a way for a wider bridge to say, look, our project of LGBT connection to Israel is not in any way in opposition to Palestinian freedom or ending harm to Palestinians because, look, we're collaborating with a group that provides some services there, or says they provide services to LGBT Palestinians. The, you know, that, the goal of that is to help distract from the reality that what a wider bridge does is things like gay tourism to Israel, like things that are exactly what the BDS movement would say we should be boycotting and would identify as propaganda. As someone who is consistently speaking up against pinkwashing and is receiving a lot of focused attack from the Zionist right, specifically from institutional Jewish community papers and organizations, a lot of these responses use a language of anti-Semitism. And I'm wondering what your take is on the discourse around anti-Semitism, both within the context of the Zionist right, but also on the left. I, I feel so frustrated by that response, although of course it's very predictable at this point. But basically what that does is it collapses, it says that anybody who questions Israel or critiques Israeli propaganda is doing so from a place of anti-Semitism. So there could be no other reason to be concerned about something a government is doing, right, which is completely absurd. And it suggests that all Jewish people have the same view on Israel or all Jewish people, you know, are aligned in that camp, which to me that feels very anti-Semitic. As a Jewish person who does not want to promote the project of Israeli colonialism and apartheid and who wants to stand up against it, that idea of having my life and my identity lumped in in that way and used in that way feels not like something that is about the liberation of Jewish people, but instead about the kind of strategic use of the long history of and, and contemporary realities of the anti-Semitism in a way that actually isn't ethical, right? And so I feel like it's, it's a consistent approach we see. It was interesting in the Seattle controversy around pinkwashing in 2012 uh, the, the, the backlash actually didn't focus on anti-Semitism. Instead, they kept saying that the city had discriminated against the Israeli pinkwashing delegation um, on the basis of national origin. I think the reason that they chose not to use the anti-Semitism frame is because the opposition, the people who were you know, opposing pinkwashing, the group that I was part of, so many of us are visibly Jewish activists and aligned with Jewish Voice for Peace Seattle chapter. So it didn't work to say that this is being done by a bunch of anti-Semites when it's clearly being done by a group that was actually a large part Jewish. And so I think it's interesting to watch. Obviously, that during the creating change controversy, the charge of anti-Semitism took off in the media and was well used. And any of us who were critiquing think Washington were called anti-Semitic. There's so many Jewish people who are raising concerns about Israeli policy and Israeli apartheid that I think sometimes it's harder for that charge to actually stick. I mean, something that I've noticed is that the version of anti-Semitism, how it operates and, and what it means, how it relates to other systems of oppression that's put forward by the institutional Jewish community is not something that is frequently responded to by the left with a coherent alternative, uh, a different way of understanding it. Yeah, I mean, I think people are, I think people freeze up in the face of that charge because obviously anti-Semitism is a real thing, right? And when you bring it up, people are afraid of being anti-Semitic, as people should be, like, thoughtful and critical and examining, uh, you know, we should all examine our own ways in which we might be participating in systems of harm to other people, especially, like, big systems like racism, anti-Semitism, colonialism, et cetera. So I do think that sometimes some people freeze up. I mean, I think the other piece of it, though, is that the 
media is so consolidated around these issues that we don't actually hear the more sophisticated accounts. So it's not that they're like necessarily lacking. Or I think that groups like Jewish Voice for Peace have a very clear way of thinking about anti-Semitism and how that charge gets made when people are critical of Israel. But so much of the media response to these controversies is really polarized. Yeah, I guess this is actually something that me and David have been talking about and we don't have answers to entirely. And we're just like, it's this brainstorm around if we move beyond the anti-Semitism isn't anti-Zionism, or yeah, if, if anti-Zionism isn't anti-Semitism, what are we then left with if we're thinking about white supremacy and settler colonialism in North America? Like, is there a piece for that to exist by itself? Or how would you think of anti-Semitism if we take for granted that it isn't anti-Zionism and, and we think about it outside of the context of Palestine? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I feel like anti-Semitism is something that we have to continue to contend with. I mean, the um, I've actually been really surprised watching the Bernie Sanders candidacy that people aren't speaking more about his Jewish heritage. I'm actually curious about when, if and when that will emerge, and, and maybe it, maybe it's happening in media outlets that I'm not plugged into. But um, but I, I do wonder, like, kind of what are the contemporary hotspots where we might be able to do some analysis about how is anti-Semitism discussed mm. in states besides. Um, when it's a charge that all anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. In my experience of spending some time in Europe, I feel like anti-Semitism is very, very visible and clear um, in some of those contexts. And I, I, mean, I grew up in the rural south, in, in rural central Virginia, and um, my last name when I was a kid was Goldschmidt, and I definitely was aware of anti-Semitism. It was a, you know, it was a live issue, and um, people told me that Jewish babies were born with horns, and there were a lot of people who hadn't been exposed to Jewish people and who had ideas about Jewish people that were harmful and sometimes came up as childhood conflict being Jewish people in an area where there was a really strong Christian domination. So for me, there's no doubt that anti-Semitism is alive and well in a bunch of different contexts in the United States and operating differently, right, in different regions and on different registers and targeting different people. You know, racism, colonialism, these things operate in really complicated ways. Um, and I don't think it's true. I think we don't have a... I don't have a sufficient account of that, and I think that there's there's a lot of room to analyze that. Yeah, I'm curious. Have you guys talked about whether or not it's come up around the Sanders campaign at all? Not on the show. I could tell you from personal from personal reading, the Jewish press is writing about it a lot, mm-hmm. and the Jewish press is writing about it from a, from a perspective of he is not identifying himself as Jewish enough. Mm-hmm. which is weird because all of these like New York, Brooklyn markers of his Jewishness are very clear to the rest of the country. There's a bunch of times, I think it was Bill Clinton possibly referenced something to the effect of like, make sure that we get a true Christian or true religious or true God-fearing candidate in reference to his wife in opposition to Bernie. So it's definitely come up subtly like that. Mm. But I don't think there's been, David, have you? Yeah, that's kind of, I think there's, yeah, a disappointment on the part of the remnants of the liberal left of the institutional Jewish community that he's not being more vocal about his, uh, his Jewish origins. But uh, there hasn't been too, too much on the subject. Yeah, that might come out more, I think, if he were to become the candidate, you know? Mm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some, it, it's interesting to think about because something I've also, I've also noticed is that on the part of people on the radical left who are Jewish and who are mobilized around issues of Palestinian solidarity it seems like there's generally a line that emerges politically that distances people from an interest in discussing anti-Semitism. It's you know put on the back burner, I think, in a lot of situations for good reason. 
But I think what over time, what happens is that we actually don't have a discourse that we can offer to challenge the one being put forward by Zionist groups. And what we've just been thinking about a lot is what is it? Yeah, what does it mean beyond that? Is, is it something that's eternal? Is it something that's unique? What are the properties? What is this narrative that we've been told? And, and what are other ways we could tell that narrative? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think also just like how might the, the narrative about Jewish people and Israel itself be anti-Semitic, like the ways in which it simplifies um, Jewish people and Judaism down, right? And the ways in which that, you know, it imagines Jewish history and Jewish populations through a very, very narrow framing that's, you know, Ashkenazi-centered and, you know, a number of other things, but that itself we might read as an anti-Semitic use of Judaism for these purposes of a colonial state. You know, I think that that, turning that back on itself also might be one part of what we should be doing. And in a country like the United States, where Jews are a minority, and how might this simplistic read of Jews be a form of anti-Semitism itself? And I think that that's, you know, maybe it's a little nuanced for quick media feedback, but I do think that that's, there's something to that. Mm. Yeah, and also with such a hegemonic narrative of what anti-Semitism is, it, like you're saying, relies on this understanding of who is Jewish to begin with. And I think that maybe part of expanding our idea of what anti-Semitism is and how it operates involves breaking up different experiences of anti-Semitism or anti-Jewishness in different contexts, geographically and historically. Yeah. I mean, we also have to really get into this. You know, you have to deal with so many things, like the fact that in the United States, the only genocide that can be narrated as having ever happened is the Holocaust, you know, and we do that so that we cannot think about the genocide of indigenous people in North America, so we cannot think about the charges that have been made that the United States is genocidal against black people, so we cannot think about so many other forms of massacre, violence, you know, population level attack. That's one piece of how Judaism is narrated in the United States as a perceived white victimhood that justifies contemporary U.S. policy and helps ignore like so many other forms of state violence. I mean, it's just all these really wild ways that narratives about Jewish people are playing for other purposes that I think relate back to how we can make an account of anti-Semitism that's accurate to the variety of contemporary experiences that Jewish people are having that, of course, differ greatly based on what their racial markers are, class issues, all of those things. Also because one of the central themes in your work is about resisting assimilation, uh, primarily from the perspective of queer and trans identity, I was wondering, for those of us who are queer trans Jews, what you think about the usefulness is about extending that anti-assimilationist politic to Jewish identity. Yeah, that's definitely something that I feel is a pretty big topic in Jewish spiritual and political communities I'm in, is the ways in which people, people often, when they talk about their families, for example, will say that their families had assimilated in these ways, right? This or that way, talking about the ways in which Jewish identities or spiritual practices or cultural practices were hidden or erased or forgotten in order to, like, survive and get by and fit in. And I feel like for a lot of people I know, it's a real source of strength to try to reclaim Jewish cultural or spiritual practices that have been pushed aside and to sort of find anti-normative ways of connecting and being politically, spiritually, and socially, which is, I mean, it's very, there's a lot of parallels there to queer and trans people pushing back against assimilation demands about how we you know, look, act, organize our sexual practices or our families, things like that. So I think it, I think it can be a, like a useful, like empowering and community building framework. And I see that happening for people I'm connected to in Jewish community as, as much as in queer and trans community. 
I feel like part of the reason that I am wrestling with the question of its usefulness is because the way that the language of assimilation is mobilized within the Jewish community or within the institutional Jewish community in such a particular strange way where it is usually code for intermarriage. It's usually code for all these very particular and uncomfortable markers for what Jewishness actually is. And I think I just wonder if it's a framework that can be salvaged from that. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, so I feel like that's you're plugging into a different conversation than the one I'm in because I'm engaging in like Jewish spiritual practice and political community with a bunch of anti-Zionist, feminist, queer trans witches, you know, so it's a little bit of a different, um, it's not a conversation about intermarriage in that way, right? We're having a different conversation about people reclaiming ritual, and oftentimes people in the communities I'm in are not actually even doing that through a formal synagogue or congregation because they can't find one that they feel comfortable in politically because of being anti-Zionist. So it's, I, I see what you're saying about the ways in which those articulations could almost forward a, like, Jewish normativity itself. I mean, I think that's one of the problems with even the use of that anti-assimilation framework in gay and lesbian or LGBT or queer and trans politics is if we were to say then that there's a more authentic queer and trans practice that could become just as limiting or harmful as saying it's problematic for us to join the kind of normative ones, right? If I was to say, like, I'm more legitimately queer or trans because I'm not married than you and you are married, you know, like that, that kind of, I, that I'm not interested in, the, in building those kinds of hierarchies or norms. And it sounds like what you're describing is, to some degree, that happening in particular conversations about Jewish assimilation. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, it was great to talk with you. I hope that you will let your listeners know that they should feel free to go to pinkwashingexposed.net and watch the film and that they can do free screenings on their campuses or in their communities if they want to. Those will, it will definitely be up on the website. Yeah, and if uh, folks want to keep track of the work that you're doing, how can they, uh, how can they find you? I have some things up on deanspade.net. Yeah, thanks so much again for taking the time. Great to talk to you guys. So that was our interview with Dean Spade. Everything that we talked about will show up in the show notes. You can take a look there. And I think it's time to bother people to go to iTunes and write a review for Trafe Podcast. So, David, have you given us a positive review on iTunes? I don't think I'm allowed to do that, Sam. Uh, I did. I <laughs> You reviewed the show? I mean, I figured I, wa- <laughs> I gave it five stars. Really? I feel like we need to contribute to the, the general review. You realize that when you log in now to iTunes and you click on reviews, it'll only be a run review there and it will say Sam Bick gives no. five stars. Like I just said something like great show or something. I didn't really like <laughs> I didn't really focus on like our our, our 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 positive qualities or anything. Well you're in charge of promo, so I leave this in your hands. No, I think you should write a positive review as well, David. Uh, I don't think I can go there. Okay, well for all the people who agree with me, write a positive review and the more reviews we get we will show that David is wrong. David, I think there's one more thing to mention. Is there? I mean, there could be a million things, but generally I have one more thing that I think we should talk about. What is it? We put out a public appeal a few weeks ago about contributions to the show. So we're looking for narrative nonfiction audio pieces to play as part of Trafe. Yeah, if you have any ideas or if you're just interested in getting to know how to do that, um, please get in touch. We have some ideas, but we want it to be focused on where you are. So just get in touch and we can have a brief conversation about it. Yeah, send us an email on the Gmail. So again, thanks for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.
Shrafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, which is located in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Merci to the Director of Design, Claire Hertig, to the Social Media Coordinator, Kira Page, and to Sex Syndrome for the music. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F. Please send comments and suggestions to trafepodcast at gmail.com.